This podcast is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school, with locations across the United States and online. Become a recognized expert and join the wine community and gain the confidence to do what you love with the winner of the WSET and Riedel Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on any Napa Valley Wine Academy classes when they use the code NVWA podcast at the time of enrollment. That code again is NVWA podcast. For more information on all the courses offered, visit NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. That's NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. I was very biased in my way of approaching it. I was empowered by the ownership, but at the same time, I thought that I have the capacity and the knowledge. So to be honest, I didn't have any doubts. And I think that when you are secure about your direction, everybody wants to follow. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, this is the Stories Behind Wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influence the world of wine. In this episode, I have the opportunity to sit down and reconnect with my friend Rodrigo Soto, a native of Chile and a passionate proponent of organic and biodynamic viticulture. We explore Rodrigo's early years in Chile and how a chance meeting at a dinner party propelled him to introduce biodynamics in Chile and become one of the most respected Chilean winemakers. Today, he is general manager of one of the most well-known winery groups in the U.S. This is Rodrigo's story. My name is Rodrigo Soto. I come from Chile. What I do in the wine business, currently I'm the GM for Quintessa, and I oversee the Huneus estates in Napa and in the Sonoma Coast. Great. So tell me, Rodrigo, thanks for coming on the show, first of all. And I will let all our listeners know that we have worked together and we go way back. So I'm really looking forward to sitting down and talking to you. Tell me a little bit about your journey in the wine business. I know you're from Chile. When did you know that wine was something that you were maybe even just considering exploring? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Chris. And just to go directly into the subject, Chile has a very rich culture in wine in different aspects. Wine was always at the table in my house. Regular wine, nothing fancy, nothing special, but was part of the diet all the time. At a very early age, I thought that I was trying to become as independent as possible in terms of certain times of the year. My family used to have a beautiful house in a vacational town in the south of Chile, in Pucón, which is the Lake District. Very nice. But it was very expensive to go out. So I thought, well, I need to figure this out because I don't want to be asking my parents all the time for permission and also for cash. I was 15 when I started working as a waiter in a friend's restaurant. And going through that process which I think is, I highly recommend it. I mean, everybody should work in a restaurant at any stage in their life because I think it's one of the most challenging professions around. And I'm sure everybody's going to relate to that about multitasking, physical work, concentration, and being a host. The hosting part is not given. I mean, you have to learn it and train it in order to do it right. And sometimes you have very difficult clients as well. And going through that experience, which was in my summertime when I was in high school, another time was legal to be underage and working because it was kind of a temporary job. 
I always was asked about recommendations for wine. And as I knew wine, I felt that I can recommend, but it was a very unprofessional way of doing it in my perspective. So that was at the time that I, I bought my first wine guide. And I started documenting myself about wine in a little more formal way. And at the time, Chile has only four or five main producers. There's not much to recommend that we're talking about mid-90s. So it was quite easy to learn. And there was stronger wines, more tannic. I mean, and this was a steakhouse. So definitely it didn't take me long. But that was my first connection. The other part was that I always saw myself working in an outdoor space. Mm-hmm. I never thought that I would be confined to an office. So that was a very strong part of the decision-making process for which career I will be studying. And I always thought that I would like to be outside, so agronomy at the time suits very well what I was thinking. And that's what I applied. I started at Universidad Católica down in Chile, which was one of the good schools for agronomy. And through the process and looking at the curriculum, I realized that there was a possibility to have a, a major in winemaking and viticulture. And that's when things start connecting. That was at the time. And I got to recognize, because I'm going to jump into subjects here, but I got to recognize I was a very mediocre student. (laughs) I was always, as I liked being going out, and at the same time, I was very much into sports at that time. So I liked training, and I was doing other things. My grades were always, I will say, rough. I mean, just below average. So it was hard for me to engage with the formal studies. But at a certain point, I really start liking it when I get into the winemaking and viticulture. Unfortunately, it was a little late for certain aspects. For example, for my thesis that I was supposed to be choose a subject at the end of my career in order to graduate, that thesis was the subject was assigned based on your grades. So as I have very poor grades, I get the leftover subject. <laughs> and the leftover subject at the time was organic farming. And that's how I connect with the next chapter in my life, which was understanding what was this hippie farming thing and start doing some research. And shortly after that, I realized that most of what I have studied the last five years was obsolete. What was your feeling when you got this subject? Were you like, oh, man, I got organics? Or did you see it and say, this is a subject I'm somewhat interested in? It definitely made a lot of sense to me because it was a conversation with nature rather than making war to nature, which was what I was told by the conventional, at the time, wrongly called conventional studies. I realized that I was a little disappointed for a while, but... Honestly, I didn't have any experience. This was all theory. So the next subject was how I can put this interesting comments or this interesting theory into practice. At the time, there was only one winery in Chile doing organics, which was Carmen Vineyards. And the winemaker there was, his name was Alvaro Espinosa. And Alvaro today is a very well-known winemaker worldwide. And Alvaro was the biggest ambassador for organics in the country. And we connect very well. I did that research for my thesis. I present my thesis. Once again, I get a below average grade, but good enough to graduate. (laughs) And my teachers didn't like the subject because it was, according to them, very incomplete statistically, which I was 
very animated about that part of the conversation because obviously one of the things that you start understanding that any environment, any farm is not replicable. You cannot replicate it. It's a matrix. So what science or conventional studies love doing is isolating variables and present them by separate. And that is a very disappointing way of thinking because nature doesn't operate in a deconstructed way. It works as a matrix. So you realize, wow, at that time, I was very disappointed with my professors and actually I never talked to them again. In that regard, that was the start. And Alvaro was very supportive at that moment. So I did my first vintage at the Carmen at the time. And it happens that Carmen at that moment was represented in the U.S. by Brown and Foreman, which were the owners of Fetzer. And in the late 90s, Fetzer was one of the leaders in organic farming. So I finished my harvest. I put a lot of energy in it, and Alvaro was very happy. And I asked him, hey, I need a favor. He was totally open. And I asked him, hey, you know what? I would like to do a harvest over California. And I know that you have a connection with Fetzer. Is it possible? And he picked up the phone in front of me, and he called Paul Dolan at the time, who was president of Fetzer at the time. And they were close, and Paul immediately accepted, and I have a long internship at Fetzer, which was a phenomenal experience because I worked four months in the field, four months in the winery. It was interesting, and it was funny because it was the first time that I was living in a trailer, so it was uh, quite in Mendocino. So if you can see the scene, it was uh, quite interesting for me. I was, <laughs> I was not the most hospitable internship, but definitely I learned a lot, yeah. and I really appreciate it for that. How was that different? How was coming? Was that your first time in the U.S. or in California at that no, age? No, I, I did a couple of internships before, and this is kind of a funny story. Before deciding to go to winemaking, I was very much into fruit culture. I'm into okay. the growing fruit. Yeah. And I did an internship in Dominguez Hills in uh, Los Angeles. Okay. That's kind of a odd, not the best neighborhood in L.A. in a cold storage. I was the QC for, I was checking on fruit quality at the time. And believe me, I learned a lot about that experience too. Yeah. It was very interesting to be, it was close to Compton yeah. in Los Angeles. Okay. And for me, it was a very revealing experience to see another side of a city that I didn't know at the time. But also I, the deal was that I worked in this kind of interesting operation in this cold storage. But the trade-off was a beautiful apartment rented for me in Hermosa Beach. <laughs> and they gave me a little bit of cash. And for me, I was a college student at the time. That was perfect. So yeah. I did that two summers in a row. Wow. Okay. And then, well, I decided to go to winemaking and viticulture, and then we get to Fetzer. Being at Fetzer, I was very lucky because I met someone that completely changed my life. I was working in the crash pad one day, and I saw this guy with a very, what I will consider at the moment, a very thick accent. It was a very southern accent. Okay. And I see this character and ask, who's that? And uh, somebody told me, that's Alan York. He's the biodynamic consultant for Fetzer, and he lives at McNabb. And I get close to him, and I introduce myself, and for some reason, we connect immediately. Since then, he invited me to his house. I mean, we start talking about farming. We start talking about biodynamics. And I start learning from somebody that I didn't have a clue who he was from a very different perspective. Years after, I learned a lot about Alan's background, which was quite unique, and also helped me see 
not only my formal studies, but also helped me see life in a different way, in a much more holistic way, in a much more complement. He gave me lessons for life. I mean, no question, not only about practical farming, but how to see nature, how to read nature and aspects like that, that are very strongly connected with winemaking, but with a lot of other things as well. Can you share some of those? I mean, can you share? It sounds obviously like he was a very important person in your life. Sure. First of all, starting with his personal life, I mean, he always described the South as a very wild place at the time that he grew up. Alan was 20 years older than me, so he grew up in the 50s in outside Louisiana. Yeah. So he didn't like what he was seeing at the time in terms of there were a lot of political issues and racist issues, and he decided that he didn't want to live in that area. So at 17, 1968, he decided to hitchhike to California. Wow. That's how he arrived to California. And shortly after that, he was drafted, and he refused. So he was assigned to do community work, and he was assigned to the Santa Cruz Mountains botanical gardens that were being under construction under a gentleman named Alan Chadwick, which was an English gentleman that was a lot of persons in one. He was a very wise person. But it happens that Alan Chadwick, according to Alan, has been brought up in a very wealthy family in England, and he had as a tutor Rudolf Steiner. Wow. So... He got from first lineage the understanding of biodynamics. At the time, Alan was illiterate. He didn't finish school, and he never really engaged with school. So he was all the time spending time in the swamps. And I remember him telling me that also late 60s, so you need to picture the whole seen being a young kid, a lot going on in the country, a lot going on in California. So he said, once it was kind of funny, he said, you know, Rodrigo, I got to confess to you, and all this with a very thick Southern accent, right? <laughs> so it was, it was like hearing Forrest Gump all the time. <laughs> and he said, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, Chris, but I'm going to say it. I mean, okay. I regularly have my LSD stamp every day. And the only thing that I remember, Rodrigo, was plants. And I started having this fascination with plants and what Alan Chadwick was telling me to do with those plants. And that's how I engage with plants. That's how I engage reading about plants. And that's how I engage with botanics in general. And that's how I learned farming. So you think about it from a completely different perspective. Many years after, we get the biggest expert on biodynamics, learning from that very unique background. Interesting. So the way for him of narrating stories, of narrating his teachings, was completely different as formal education. All personal, it sounds like very personal related stories. Absolutely. Well, for me, it was more than a, obviously a mentor, but at the same time, that curiosity that you have from a person that has gained wisdom through a very different process. For me, that was very, very unique. You mentioned there was almost an immediate connection. You were drawn to Alan, and you were at a special place, right? Fetzer, which at the time was doing some innovative 
things as far as organics is concerned. What was the general state of the industry at that time in reaction to biodynamics or or organics? Was it starting to soften or was it still something out on the fringe that people saw out on the fringe? This was clearly they were breaking ground. I mean, they were not considered serious about what they were doing. And I think that organics didn't have a good reputation for a reason as well. I mean, like everything starting has a lot of different angles that was trial and error. And there were things that were not working at the time. And again, after many, many years of that experience, you realize that you cannot put a concept in front of quality. Quality needs to be first. How you reach quality is very interesting to discuss. But if you don't have it, it's very difficult to be respected. Right, right. Someone once spoke to said that in the early years of organics, it was used almost as an excuse for quality, saying totally. it might might not be great quality, but it's at least it's organic. Yeah, And it sounds like that has changed over time and the paradigm has kind of flipped. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. And it was farming by default, basically. There was very little action. And today, I think that they can go together in the same path. And actually, one reinforces the other one. And the same thing with biodynamics. And biodynamics, in my opinion, is the ultimate way of farming. To me, I mean, I'm not preaching or trying to force anybody to go that direction, but it's such a concept that helps you see your property in a way that you will never see it if you are not under that influence. And I think that's very important because if you think about it, the vines are such sensitive organisms that they truly reflect their environment. If you create the right environment for your vines and you understand where you're working, meaning understand your soils, understand your climate, and understand your farming techniques, you can maximize the quality of your property. If you're not there, you can be in a very talented place and have quality. But if you don't, which is the majority of the properties, you have a problem. And I think that is the fascinating part about our profession that constantly is teaching us new things about knowing ourselves and knowing our states. And in that aspect, you improve quality in a substantial way. What was Alan's impact on conventional farming or conventional winemaking? You said he was consulting at Fetzer and and you worked with him. What were some of the ideas and philosophies he was putting forward that really resonated with you, that where you said I think this is something I want to pursue. Well, the concept of managing a state, of managing a property. Many times in the early days, you see and you visited properties that or vineyards that they talk to you and uh, this is our vineyard and this is our organic block and this is the rest of our vineyard, <laughs> which was kind of funny. But at the same time, I understand the point. I mean, you are not going to take a risk if you don't understand it, if you don't understand the whole philosophy behind it. So in that aspect, Chris, that was quite interesting to understand that or you focus on the management of a whole property, meaning the surroundings, not necessarily only the vineyards, but what surround the vineyards, your habitat breaks, your avenues, your hillsides everywhere is part of this matrix. And when you start accepting that, you start not only observing your vines, you start observing to the side of the road as well and see what's going on there. And how is that connected? And with time, I learned more and more about it and also confirmed with scientific approaches how important that is. Many years after, 
I did a study in Chile about the yeast that lived in the native forest surrounding the vineyard. I was doing all native fermentations. So I was very curious about if was there any relationship. Guess what? The correlation was very, very high, meaning the organisms that lived in the surroundings are definitely interacting with your primary cultivar. And that definitely is part of the sense of place that we're trying, all of us are trying to look for. You bring up an interesting point. I mean, much has been written about yeasts being one of the most important contributors to terroir or the notion of terroir. Mm. What were some of the discoveries you made in that study? Well, years after, because obviously we are all teached about yeast based on fear, mm. <laughs> which is if you don't do use conventional, you're going to have a stack fermentation and you're going to have a lot of trouble yeah. and you're going to ruin your wine. Mm. That was at least what I was taught was uh, not in exactly those words, but it was very clear that I would not be successful to try that. So I was very shy at certain time to go for native fermentations, and I was one of those that was talking about yeast strains in order to support my speech about wine quality, which I feel embarrassing right now that I was talking on those terms. But uh, definitely you realize that those strains that has been isolated and are very successfully diffused all over the world in these packages and these broad catalogs about yeast specifics, you realize that that is definitely modeling the effect of sense of place. I mean, those yeasts are isolated, who knows where, then they're multiplied in these laboratories in Scandinavia and then brought to the world to be utilized no matter where you are. You can get the same yeast if you're in Chile, you're in Argentina, you're in South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, whatever, wherever. I mean, California, you can get the same yeast. And I think that's basically commoditizing our profession. If you accept native yeast, obviously, there are a lot of things that needs to be proven but obviously makes a lot of sense. If you're talking about sense of place, yeast is a very strong variable on that. And I think we should try to make a little bit of a stronger effort to see what it reveals. It may not be what you expect, but that doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. One often hears that native yeasts are more fragile than the industrial, let's call them industrial yes. yeast or commoditized yeast. Yeah. And one often hears, too, that the primary strain Saccharomyces will dominate or take over a native yeast fermentation. Is that true? Or how does one keep, there's been articles written that Saccharomyces can involuntarily be transmitted into a fermentation and then kill off, off native yeasts. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in terms of the specifics, and to be honest, Chris, I don't have all the answers for that. But let me tell you something. In my career has been way more successful with native yeast than with commercial yeast. Way more. And I think there's a reason why is that. The reason is that native yeast has a very different dynamic, which I think it relates much to us in terms of population dynamics. It's a natural growth that you monitor carefully and that it gets to a peak and then start fading out according to the nutrition and the food available in that particular fermenter. When you utilize commercial yeast, you inoculate a tank with a very gross amount of yeast as a population in order to get the job done. So conceptually, you're not growing it up. You just add a massive amount of individuals to get it done 
quickly. So you are partially in control. And then guess what? Your tanks heat up. So you need to cool it down. And you start forcing again the process. And you start, quote unquote, fighting the process in a way that is very unnatural. And uh, all the extraction comes in a different timing. All the revelation of flavors and aromas comes at a different timing. So for me, under that perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I respect the process and I understand it, but also many times and many of this yeast has been developed in order to turn around tanks faster, which I don't think is the best motivation for quality. Yeah, it'd be as if Thomas Keller at the French Laundry tried to use microwaves to make his food faster, right? Well, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And we have the same in, in the kitchen. We have a lot of very good analogies. I mean, what we're seeing now, we're baking. And there's a, a whole other process of not necessarily slow fermentations, just the right pace of a fermentation reveals very true flavors mm. of those grapes. Yeah, it's so, interesting. I am a uh, hobby baker. And what I've learned in baking bread is without using baker's yeast, you can make bread if you have the fermentation take long enough, right? So with ambient yeast, you can make bread as well. And it often is much more complex and dynamic than it is as if you just added baker's yeast and let it rise for, Absolutely. for a, short, a short amount of time. Absolutely. So Fetzer, it sounds like that was really the beginning where you were introduced to totally new concept and a way of thinking. Correct. What happens next? You go back to Chile no, or? At that time, I really was interesting about other cultures because for me, it was a cultural experience as well. So I learned and I really like it. So I thought, wow, what an opportunity. I don't want to go back. So at the time, somebody in Fetzer connected me with a winery in New Zealand. New Zealand at the time was very different than what it is today because <laughs> New Zealand today invite interns basically, because they're very short labor. At the time that I went there, it was not very inviting. It was a very <laughs> close country. So it was very hard for me to get my visa to work there. And second thing that called my attention immediately is that there were two police officers waiting for me at the airport <laughs> when, <laughs> when I arrived in 1998. And they asked me, I mean, are you the South American guy. It was not even the Chilean guy. It was, it was a guy from the that <laughs> southern continent. So yeah. anyway, that was a fascinating experience as well because at the time New Zealand was starting to learn about Pinot Noir. Mm. It was starting, well, they mastered the Sauvignon Blanc as a variety and they were very precise. And it was the first time, I mean, coming from Fetzer, that was a large operation, obviously, to work as a smaller producer and that there were a lot of fine details that were discussed. And that was kind of the first time that I saw also how precision can be applied to a process that we know so little. So it was a very good times. I met incredible people and what a beautiful country as well. So again, I was really, really having a lot of fun through these experiences. And being in New Zealand, I get a phone call from Jim Fetzer, which I've met before because Jim was not part of Fetzer Winery, but he was the main supplier as he still owned Siago Vine Garden at the okay. time, today yeah. McNabb, which was actually was the year that it was acquired. So Jim asked me if I was interested in working with him because he was planning to make a little bit of wine and Alvaro Espinosa will be the wine consultant <laughs> and Alan York will be the viticulturalist. Wow. 
Okay. So for me, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, absolutely yes. And I was the seller rat for that project, which again, for the first time, I was at a very young age. I was managing a few fermenters by myself and doing everything at the winery. So it was a tremendous learning experience wow. and I really enjoy it. And it was a great time. And so it was another excuse for not going back to Chile at the moment and to learn a little bit more about this process that was opening so many doors in the world for me. Mm-hmm. And after that experience, it was time for me to go back with a lot of ideas at a very young age, with a lot of energy. And when I went back, I contacted a good friend of mine from school, who his family is in a lot of other businesses in Chile, but they were starting a winery, not even a winery, a vineyard in a new appellation in Chile. It was a coastal appellation named San Antonio. And this was Matetic, which is a Croatian last name. And these people are really visionaries in the country in all their businesses. And they wanted to do a project with Californian standards, basically focus on less varieties, be high-end, and be very focused on the process. Mm -hmm. I was very interested, obviously, But at the time, I remember meeting with Jorge Sr. and my friend and his brother and introducing them because I took a lot of pictures at the time. There were a lot of slides and I make the slideshow for them, talking to them about biodynamics. Mm -hmm. And they look at this presentation and they couldn't believe it. They thought there was this most beautiful, well-thought process and they completely bought into it in terms of really wanted to do that. I think that wealth was very suited with their long-term vision. Yeah. And at the same time, they asked me, well, who can help us with this? This sounds great, but do you have the knowledge to do all this? And I said, no, I don't have the knowledge, but I know the man that can help us. Yeah. That guy is Alan York. Mm-hmm. And that's how Alan went down to Chile. And at the same time, my dear friends from Emiliana, which is a branch of Conchitoro, also were thinking about organics and biodynamics. So in the, between the two projects, we brought Alan as a consultant down to Chile for a week, three times per year. Okay. And that's how it all started in practice. Mm-hmm. Before it was all theory, but yeah. that's where it became from being fashionable and the cool thing to do to a real thing. Mm-hmm. With all the challenges, with all the difficulties, but at the same time, with all the great ideas and positive exposure that it has. So we did very well, Chris. And those wines, I remember, was uh, I have some cool climate Syrah and some Pinot Noir. And it was the first time, I don't know, this uh, sounds a little, not much uh, today, but at the moment was uh, the first Pinot Noir above 90 points coming from Chile. Wow. And still, at a young age, that gave me a tremendous exposure. Yeah. And not only to me, but to that interesting project. And it was very, very successful. So it was a lot of fun to work on that. And we did great. And I have a fantastic team. And I have a very strong collaborators and a very strong ownership that pursue for the quality and always was searching for that. And so they were very, very happy with it. Were there challenges? I mean, it sounds like... It went very smoothly, but I can imagine there were also challenges in introducing. I mean, it sounds like this was the first time biodynamics was introduced into Chile. Absolutely. What were people, how were their reactions? Because I know sometimes when biodynamics is introduced, there are some very strong visceral reactions by other winery owners or vineyard owners. And it's been called voodoo. It's been called crazy. 
What were the, some of the reactions you encountered? Exactly those ones. And then you realize that there are certain aspects in life that you're never going to convince anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think unless you go through a introspective, mm-hmm. for me, it's religion, politics, and farming. Mm-hmm. They all <laughs> go in the three similar bags in terms of you're not going to tell anybody how they should think. Yeah. If they see it, they will believe it. And they will try to understand it if they're open to it. Mm-hmm. And that is a slow process. But on the other hand, that's why quality is so important. Because when quality speaks, people pay attention. And they want to replicate that. Yeah. Quality is very addictive in that aspect. Because everybody wants to have high quality with what they do. I think that for many years, volume was important. But at certain point or evolution of the business, you are, or maybe you are, but people want to have their qualitative challenges. Right. So it sounds like achieving those 90 points for the Pinot Noir from Chile was kind of a validation of, hey, you can no. do the right thing, you can farm the right way, and have the quality. No question. Yeah. No question. And that brought a lot of attention, mm-hmm. obviously. And I think that was a very interesting moment in time. So I was mentioning to you, Chris, that gave me exposure and after six years working with the Matetich family, I started feeling that I was not adding a lot of value. My team was very well trained and very well prepared. And I felt that I was, one day I find myself looking at the watch. And I thought, man, this is not a good sign. I never did this before. Yeah. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time for the team to step up and I should look for something else to do. And at that moment, I remember in Alvaro's house, as I was picking Alan to come to our time of consulting with him, the three of us were having a conversation and I mentioned to them, you know, guys, I've been thinking about this uh, for a long time and I think I'm going to resign to my position with time so that we do the right transition. And I'm thinking about doing something else. And exactly that, in that same conversation, Alan looked at me and he said, well, Rodrigo, why don't you come to California? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, how come, Alan? I would would love to do that, but I don't know any business owners there. I don't know anybody that can do. Well, Rodrigo, Mike Benziger is restructuring his company, Mm -hmm. and I think that you will be a really good fit for the winemaking team, and I think you should talk. And long story short, Chris, he put us in contact and we get along very well with Mike and they were looking for stepping up in many of their vineyard designates and they have some properties that they wanted to move to from organic to biodynamic and Mike gave me an incredible opportunity. And when you think about it, that was another moment in time that thanks to biodynamic farming, I get this possibility, Mm -hmm. which for me was very, very revealing. At a very different stage of my life, I was just married with my dear wife, and I look at her, My, would you consider moving? My has lived in the U.S. before in two occasions in her life. She loves it. She says, absolutely, yes, let's do it. So it was a very interesting journey, and again, being in a very different league and at the same time with different challenges was a full re-education about farming techniques, about precision, about 
exposure about winemaking. I mean, it was like starting from scratch and um, it was a very, very good. And with the benefit that Alan was working twice a week with the Benzigers, so we were very lucky to spend two full days together every week. Mm-hmm. So that was clearly for me a mentorship in mm-hmm. terms of biodynamics yeah. and understanding in deep all that concepts that I apply in Chile, but I was not with the regularity that was in California understanding them. How would you say farming in Chile and farming in Northern California, are they similar? Are they different? They're both Mediterranean climates. Yes. Right? What are some of the parallels and what are some of the differences? So the scenario is very similar. Mm. Napa is almost mirrored with Casablanca, which is a in terms of the soil, the age of the soils are similar. The topography is very familiar. You all, In Chile, you have in the background the Andes Mountains that you almost see it from everywhere in the country because they're very big, they're very tall. Mm-hmm. Over here, you have the Sierras that you don't see that much because there's a difference in the angle of yeah. the tectonics. But age of the soils, the marine influence, Pacific Ocean, we both are blessed with that cold currents. Mediterranean climate, you're very right. Now, we have a Latin country and an Anglo-Saxon country, (laughs) and that's a very different mentality. One of the things that California has developed since, I don't know, from the very beginning, I may not be well-versed in that aspect, but quality is something very important. In Chile, because of the difficulties that on the challenges of commercializing the wine, because the domestic market is very little, volume was a very important aspect. Quality came after as an afterthought, Mm. and I think it's getting there, Mm. but it takes time. In terms of farming, you see a difference of precision. When you are farming 1,200 acres for a winery, it's very different than you're farming 120. Mm. The level of dedication, the level of understanding, the level of depth, it's different. Mm -hmm. And you understand that the challenges, obviously, are going to be different in that aspect. Of course, farming a smaller surface for a very high-priced bottle of wine, it requires a lot of attention. But on the other aspect, when you farm a massive-scale vineyard, also requires logistics and other aspects of attention. But still, both are challenging in different ways. But the mentality is different. Excellent point, and leads me to my next question, and that is uh, scale, right? You touched on the differences maybe in scale vineyard size of 1,200 acres versus 100 acres. When you overlay the lens of biodynamics or organics over that scale, is it possible to farm 1,200 acres, 2,400 acres biodynamically or organically and still get quality? Or is, are those philosophies of farming more suited for, for smaller scale? Mm-hmm. That leads to my third labor experience. So after Benzinger, and sorry to make the introduction, but after Benzinger, I was there for six years and a tremendous experience. I thought that after that cycle, it was time for me to go back to Chile. Being over here, I was very lucky to meet the Huneos family Mm -hmm. through my wife, that she was working for them when we moved here. Mm -hmm. And when I moved back to Chile, I started working for their properties down there. And the first thing that I asked Augustine Sr., that if he will allow me to shift from conventional farming to organic farming, 1,200 acres in three properties. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, you think, why are you doing this? Because I think it's for the quality of the wine. And he looked at me and he said, 
well, if it's for the quality of the wine, I will support that. But you need to bring me results. <laughs> well, I asked a little bit of time. And I did start that change. And obviously, that was a tremendous amount of work. Mm -hmm. Culturally, to shift internally your team, make compost for those surfaces. It was everything at a large scale. But I was supported by the ownership. And at the same time, there was a tremendous positiveness around it. Mm -hmm. The concept of organics was way more mature. Mm -hmm. So there was a better understanding and a better direction. For me, organics in Chile, the biggest challenge is fertility. So how to make good quality compost? And we brought the best experts to understand that. We brought Claude and Lydia Bourguignon. Mm -hmm. We brought Bruno Follador. We brought people that are compost experts. And we start mastering the technique. And we start seeing our vineyards coming back. And the quality start going up. And long story short, Chris, at the end of the cycle, we have one of our wines with perfect score. After dedication, work, and not that scores are that important, but it was a very powerful endorsement. It was one out of four in Chile with Alma Viva, Che Seña, and Claudia Palta, the big hitters. Right. And we were the little guy doing it our own way at the same level. Mm -hmm. That was important. Mm -hmm. That was, in my opinion, a very important proof that it can be done. And it takes time. It takes a lot of energy and effort. But at the same time, the response from the properties, from the soils, from the vineyards, teach you a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And when you treat them well, they are very generous in that aspect. So you, you go back to Chile. Mm -hmm. And you obviously bring your experience with you and your passion for changing a large-scale operation from traditional quote-unquote to organic farming. You said the wineries that you worked with in the Huneus portfolio down there, they've been doing it a certain way for a long, long time. Yes. How does one go about being the new guy coming in and saying, okay, I'm here and Today, we're going to start a process of doing it different. Yeah. I mean, that is hard, right? Because that is a cultural practice that has been ingrained in them for a long time. Right. How do you go about that? How do you get them to realize and see that their work and this change will bear fruit? That's a good question because I have not think about it too much. I just did it. Huh? I was very biased in my way of approaching it. I was empowered by the ownership, but at the same time, I thought that I have the capacity and the knowledge. So to be honest, I didn't have any doubts. And I think that when you are secure about your direction, everybody wants to follow. And in that aspect, again, I find a team that was waiting for instructions, that was waiting for challenges in order to perform. This brings a lot of pride to the company as well. We move the needle of organic certified surface in the country. We bring it up 15%. Wow. So that was phenomenal for mm. all the team, and they feel part of that process like no other time. Mm. So I think those are the aspects that when you engage with your team and you celebrate with them as well, it brings a mystique yeah. to them in a way that everybody feels 
part of it. And I think that is what creates very, very powerful interactions. Mm -hmm. And passion, as you said, it seems that it's very contagious because everybody was pushing harder than what I thought. Mm -hmm. And actually, I have to put the brakes in some things because they want to go faster. And that's great to see when you realize that combination of experience, positive energy, knowledge, put science at the service of organics. It's not random things. Monitoring and discipline and organization are important, but you realize it can be done. You know what? Other companies start looking at us and asking us, what are you guys doing? Because this was a very exposed vineyard right next to one of the main highways of the country. People couldn't believe it. They thought that we were totally crazy. Mm. And at the end of the process, sales went up, quality of the wines went up. It was a remarkable experience. Congratulations. I mean, that is an enormous project, right? Anytime you endeavor to to make a large change change like that. Listening to you today, it sounds like you've had a very natural and lucky progression to your career, Mm -hmm. right? You kind of followed this guide through your career. What were the biggest challenges? I mean, along the way, there must have been some big challenges. What were those challenges? Honestly, Chris, I don't remember difficulties at the time. I mean, or maybe I didn't take them as that. Of course, there are uncertain moments. Of course, there are difficult times that you lose hope or you lose vision. But I think that sometimes in a country like Chile, I mean, one of the most difficult aspects for me was try to keep my workers happy mm-hmm. because of different reasons. We have a, a unionized vineyard and winery. Mm-hmm. And those negotiations were very, very tough, mm-hmm. were very, very difficult because it was people that I appreciate, that I really work close to them. So in that aspect, those were difficult moments for me to interact and share the vision, the enthusiasm when you are confronting basic needs that are not covered. Mm. Those are very difficult moments to maintain the spirit of the team up when you have demands and situations like that. Mm. Apart from that, and that's something very important, as we know, these conversions or these directions, you are nothing without a good team. And those were difficult moments for me because, I mean, projects are tight down there in terms of tight, in terms of the stream of revenue is not the most generous one. It's a tight business. So it's many times as every country that suffers from those inequalities like Chile, I mean, these are difficult aspects to confront many times. So we have pending homework as a country in that aspect. Very important ones. Mm-hmm. Is your work done in that country? You're back here in in the U.S., in Napa. I think I closed a chapter there. I continue doing a little bit of consulting. When you consult, it's a much more disengaged. You're not there every day. But I always have said that no matter where you are, you always want to contribute to the industry. This is a beautiful industry that generates not only the pleasure of drinking a nice bottle of wine, it generates culture. And we are all new. California is new compared to the old world countries. Uh, Chile is the same way. We need to build our own culture. And I think wine has a tremendous responsibility on that. 
because of the farming aspect, the connection with the land, the connection with a product that reflects sense of place. All those connections are very, very powerful and make places unique. Mm -hmm. And I think that if there's anything that can be added to that and I can be part of that, I'll be very happy to do it. Let's talk about climate change, right? A lot has talked about climate change and we see here we are in February and we see 76 degrees outside with the potential of bud break happening in February, something quite crazy. Where do you see dangers in that and where do you see opportunities in that? A couple of things, Chris. The vision for climate change, obviously, it's a tough one. It's kind of the crystal ball, how we figure this out. So everybody's following trends and Mm -hmm. things like that. There's a lot of talk about how certain variables are moving in certain trends. Temperature, obviously, lack of rain, and things like that. There's one variable that nobody talks about which is the capacity of vines to adapt. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks about that. Everybody likes talking, predicting the future, what is going to be the new region, where you should buy property and stuff like that. That's what corporations do. Right. They're putting their chips in cooler areas or higher elevation areas or wherever they can escape warmth. But nobody is really understanding what the plants have to say about this which I think I'm not saying that's the only answer, but it's part of the conversation. I think that there's a lot to integrate in this subject. And obviously, we need to be very alert. But believe me something, plants are feeling it as we speak. And they're going to have to figure out how to react to that. If your vineyard is sensitive, it will have a larger shift gear, a larger gearbox. If your vineyard is not, meaning conventionally farmed, meaning not connected to its environment, probably it's going to suffer a lot. So it only reinforces the concept of farming in a way that your vineyard is properly adapted rather than you dictating what it needs to happen. Interesting. That's for now. And for the future, obviously, we got to look at alternatives, understanding that the environmental conditions are changing, but are changing. We tend to look at averages and we need to look at the events as well. This may be particular events of heat, particular events of rain, of frost, of snow. I was farming this vineyard in the coast over here, Chris, flowers. Last year, we were pruning, looking at the ocean from Seaview Ridge, and it started to snow. I not, never had that before. Mm-hmm. I thought this was so foreign to me. I don't know. I was asking the guys, I mean, hey, you guys, have this happened before? Never before. Wow. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things that are happening, we need to see what's their reaction and try to understand these events. I don't see any coherent vision yet for what's going to happen with climate change and vineyards, but I'm sure if we put our heads together, we can totally figure this out. Not totally, but we're going to be better prepared. But that conversation needs to be articulated in a very different fashion than currently, in my opinion. Yeah, very well said. Last question. You've been to New Zealand, you've been to California, you've been to, obviously, from Chile. Mm -hmm. 
What other region would you desire to make wine in? That's a very good question. Challenging. I always think that, you know, there are regions that are so fascinating to me. I mean, there are places that I don't understand that well. I mean, like Alsace, and obviously Burgundy has always been a, I feel that I missed an opportunity years ago, having the possibility to do something there, but the time was not the right timing for me. So Barolo, Brunello, so many places, Chris, that I spent some time in Spain. You see what's happening in Gredos, in Rivera Sacra, Galicia, and all those areas caught my attention immensely. And meeting the characters that live there make it more attractive and understanding the deep, deep culture of those places. Bringing or learning a little bit of that, it definitely calls my attention quite a bit. And I think those are very good experiences to bring wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Those models, you must be able to replicate them, and I'm sure they're going to give you something new to whatever region you're living in. Well, thank you very much for sharing your time and great insight into your career and biodynamics and many other topics. And look forward to hopefully having you back sometime at the show. And congratulations on all your success. Thank you very much, Chris. Great pleasure to see you. Cheers. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. Again, that email address is sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, napavalleywineacademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the Stories Behind Wine. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>